Welcome to the Star Love Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Beck, the Oracle in New Orleans, founder of Inner Makeup Astrology. To learn more about what I do, visit innermakeup.net. And today, I am extraordinarily grateful to have Jeffrey Cornelius. Jeffrey Cornelius is one of my favorite astrologers in the world, and he came out with a book called Moment of Astrology, Origins and Divination in the early 90s. And to get an idea about how, you know, in my opinion and many others' opinions, how important this book is, this is what Patrick Curry said. This is an extraordinary book. I believe that within the astrological tradition, it is the most important since the great flowering of European astrology more than 300 years ago. Quietly but deeply subversive, this is a book for lovers of wisdom. And a lot, of, and also one of our other eminent astrologers, Rob Hand, calls it one of the most important astrological books of our time. It not only reshapes the view of astrology that astrologers might have, it challenges the, it challenges the entire notion of what constitutes knowing and knowledge in our civilization. It shows that astrology is not only important in and of itself but also for what it reveals about the nature of truth and our experience of it in general. And personally, Moment of Astrology saved my astrological life because when I was first starting out, I felt that there had to be some kind of objective astrology that I needed to bring to every session. So what was happening was I felt like I was jumping off a cliff with every reading. And, you know, I would do all this preparation. I would even write an essay for each client to just show, no, I've done this work. And, you know, you can see that I've done this and I'm, you know, hopefully this works. And miraculously, the readings work that I do. And, you know, um, the astrologer, Anthony Lewis, he recommended the moment of astrology, the moment of astrology to me at one point. He said, you'll love it. And it was true and it really had such a profound impact on me as far as the own astrological work that I do because I do think astrology is best placed in the realm of divination and the humanities. So with that, Jeffrey, how goes it? Yes, Dan, thank you very much for that introduction and um, uh, it's an honor to be on your podcast, Dan, so thank you. Um, I hope we can uncover some interesting things for your listeners. Uh, how goes it with me? Well, it's always an open book. What's going to happen when one starts to talk on these themes? Because they are actually quite fast. You, those tremendous quotes you gave me from um, Rob Hand. What's interesting about Rob is that he doesn't actually agree with a number, whole number of things I say. But Rob Hand knows that this is an area of debate that we've got to have as intelligent modern astrologers. So um, that's really where I'm coming from. And I hope to. I don't expect all listeners or readers to agree with me on all points. But I'd, I'd like them to think about the implications of either agreeing or disagreeing. So I originally put the question to many astrologers. OK, is astrology our horoscopic astrology, let's let's limit the field a moment to what we ordinarily do with horoscopes. Is that best to be seen as a, as some type of technical science or is it best seen in the light of divination? Hence the uh, um, way I've pitched the moment of astrology. 
And one thing to say to you and, um, uh, and, and, and others who might not have come across my work is I'm very concerned that there should be a, a good craft of astrology. It is a craft and it has to be worked. Ficino says due diligence is, is the basis of it. You do work at your astrology. And so you've said how you prepared yourself and used to prepare yourself for readings. You do do that. This is very like the Virgo we're talking about in our current <laughs> talking. You do do that work, but that itself doesn't guarantee the grace that occurs, the extraordinary movement that occurs with symbol as symbol begins to arise in our consciousness. And it's that that interests me. And it's that that has to be privileged in our astrology. But it doesn't mean we ever um, get rid of, of, of good techniques and good craft and, and practical astrology. So I'm all for that. I like good craft. Yes. And just for, you know, you said, you know, I'm a Virgo. And <laughs> the only reason I bring this up for, for people who want to know, who can want to look at the chart of this moment to, you know, this is a moment of astrology. It's July 23rd, 2020. It's a little bit after 9 a.m. Uh, central time because I'm, I'm down in New Orleans, which is the southern part of the United States in the central time zone. Um, and Jeffrey, you're calling from England. So that's, you know, this moment of astrology. And, you know, people can look into that um, how they might want to. But you know, it's, one thing to hold on to is that this idea of astrology is kind of this kernel within us, you know, that it's not so much this objective interpretation of observable reality, but that divination actually comes from within. And I always go back to this quote um, by Marsilia Ficino that the heavens are entirely within. And we're, we're going to get at that a little bit. That's a big point, I think, in all of this. But could, could you just talk a little bit about your background, you know, some of the teaching you do, what you've been up to? Um, okay. okay, I will. Um, I've been many, many decades in astrology, so um, I've been with it for so many years. But um, actually, I came into astrology through... Um, an interest in and a real attempt to research into divination. So um, I, uh, as a youngster, I did tarot and similar things, and I was tried to experiment with all sorts of things. And a very important move for me was to begin to get into the uh, Yijing, the Book of Changes. Mm. And um, in many ways, you see, I, when I finally came into craft astrology as a, as a craft of divination, I'm already looking at it within the viewpoint of somebody who's used to divination and the phenomena, remarkable phenomena um, and, and human phenomena as well of divination. So that's how I place my astrology. And that um, it's only gradually as I as I met with astrologers and entered into the discourse of astrology, I began to realize that that isn't the um, most common way in that it's in people who, who haven't come in through a previous practice of the imagination or of divination um, will have a different view. And so I realise there are many different ways one comes into astrology. Um, in terms of my own biography, then, um, I've been many years um, involved in education in various ways, mostly at what's called in this country adult education which is like part-time enthusiast hobby. So I was one of the first people in inner London to be able to be permitted to teach astrology in an mm. education evening class. So, so I love that type of work. Um, and so 
and then in more recent times I've got a, got involved at the university level and uh, have recently been involved with a master's programme Myth, Cosmology and the Sacred at Canterbury Christchurch University. That is now closing down with both oh. COVID and the university um, um, changing everything. So we've come to an end of a seven year phase of, of that work. But that too is all part of my um, work really. Um, and that's dealing a lot with not trying to teach people astrology as such, but entering into the fields of the imaginal and the poetic and the mythopoeic, um, which interests me greatly. Mm. I hope that gives a little bit of a, a line through. And then um, I, I've then I've been a teacher of astrology quite a lot, done quite a lot of practical teaching of astrology, which I enjoy. And uh, and I also am a consultant as well, so uh, I do do that work and love that work. So I'm, I'm in that sense a craft astrologer, but I have many other things I want to teach on the basis of that. What? Well, go ahead. Well, you know, so you said this is an era that's somewhat um, closing for you. I mean dear this world right now i mean it's been the most disrupted it's probably ever been in our lifetimes but what what might you imagine for yourself going forward as far as your own work well it's quite clear that um i've got to embrace much more social media and uh, and make make materials that go online more and I, both uh, me and my colleagues at the company of astrologers small group of teachers my partner maggie hyde um, are thinking of developing much more our work online mm -hmm. uh, and and that's that's obviously how we're going to go mm -hmm. uh, that's a shame because I love love small classes of people and meeting with people that I, I love doing astrology that way but we're all going to change mm -hmm. and I do think that the um, coming Jupiter Saturn the, the chain the mutation mm -hmm. into air does mark out a new phase mm -hmm. and I do have hopes I do have hopes and I believe the astrology backs it up that we will resolve COVID a, a little better than our worst fears might be mm -hmm. that, 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 uh, that we'll be into a new phase by middle of next year. Yes. And just a couple small technical points. Your website is astrodivination.com and you can also, people can also go to the Company of Astrologers website, which actually, um, it was Maggie who just released an essay about the coming Saturn-Jupiter conjunction, correct? Yes, there's a, yes. There's a free right. download of, um, right. of a whole um, uh, Zoom session on that, actually. Right. But very welcome to, to look at it. it. It bears particularly on the UK situation, but mm -hmm. the treatment of the equinox and solstice maps is very, very relevant for anywhere mm -hmm. in the world. So. And I think we take a, um, we've, we've been relatively optimistic on the basis of that astrology, I must say. However, Dan, just to say to you, the appearance of Neowise recently has uh, quite stirred up the pot. I would yeah. say. I'm, I'm still, and so is Maggie, and so all of us trying to just get a handle on what the comet is trying to show us. That's right. another whole of that would take us into another whole uh, yeah. podcast. I'm yes, sure. I'm, try I'm trying to see the comet, but we've had a lot of cloudy nights. Like, it's like the uh, comet seems to be tried. obscuring. I'm yes, um, we've managed to see it four nights running. It's uh, oh, nice. something. Um, yes. Okay, wonderful. So, you know, check all that stuff out. Go to astrodivination.com. Go to the Company of Astrologers website. And 
you can donate and support um, this work. I gave a donation the other day because I saw this essay pop up that Maggie did. And, you know, please support this work. It's wonderful stuff. Um, Thanks, oh, Dan. That's, that's a big help. Yes. Yes. I had, I had a thought, but um, let, let me just go on. It's, it's just as a little aside, it's interesting you bring up I Ching because <laughs> I Ching keeps announcing itself to me over my whole life because, you know, the famous um, experimental composer John Cage used I Ching. And I have my background in classical music and the humanities. So when you talk about an entry point into astrology, I found my entry into astrology through the arts, but then also divination, I guess, similarly to you. Um, and I just, <laughs> so it's interesting you announced I Ching today. And I, you know, there also Philip K. Dick, a famous writer people may know oh, from yes. Man in the High yes. Castle. And it, oh, it's like eaching everywhere. And I, I actually, um, my sister does feng shui and I, I've done some work on my living space. And I swear it works. You know, who knows? There's good skeptical arguments against it. But, you know, there's something I keep, the eaching keeps calling to me. But then you've warned me, don't. Dan, you have to focus and, you know, it needs to be simple and don't go. <laughs> so, <laughs> all, right. Um, all right. So wonderful. So let's yes, talk it's a whole about... lifetime there, Dan. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And um, anyways, so the moment of astrology. So people and really, if you're a student of astrology, that's to whom this book is dedicated. So check it out. But interestingly, I've had other people interested in this book and there's a lot in it that even if you're not an astrologer, there are bits and pieces that would be relevant. And when we were conceiving of doing this podcast, we're gonna try to address skeptics, people who are interested in astrology, and they maybe have another discipline in their life, like maybe they're a mathematician and they might be interested in astrology. And then of course, also other astrologers, but then also people who are doing the work of astrology in their lives. Uh, one, and there's an interesting thing in Moment of Astrology. It's actually one of my favorite um, elements. We probably don't have time to go into this that much, but one of the studies, uh, the Vernon Clark trials that were done, there was, you say that there was a curious result that sometimes people who, they didn't have no knowledge of astrology, but they had like maybe a couple years in, they performed just as well as some of the advanced astrologers. When it, and it was, you know, is it, from what I understand, a decently set up study, double blind, but it was live astrology, it was live in the moment. And I've seen this in my own life. Like I just, just briefly, um, there was a lady I met, she, she was an Aries. I mean, she was like hard driving at me, but successful businesswoman. And she led a team of salesmen and she used the moon phases in her own kind of homegrown way. And it worked. And she did some, you know, funny enough, Chinese astrology. And she said herself that Chinese and Western, she's like, it's different, but it says the same thing. I mean, she was a part Aries. And I, I love yes. this lady. Um, so that gets into what is astrology? Is it a language? I've been coming to the, to, if we're going to classify it, a divinatory art, a client gifted me with that term or an interpretive analysis. I think these are some ways to begin to think about astrology. Yes. Um, but regardless of all that, so the message of that is it's like the chef Thomas Keller. He, if anybody knows him here in the States, French laundry per se, famous restaurants, he says, if you have great ingredients and good tools, you can cook just as well as me. So for those of you listening out there, kind of maybe you were in a position like I was, you know, you know, like four years ago or so where you're like, I'm doing astrology, but wow, there's, you know, 
there are so many techniques and it's so advanced. Remember, it's a journey. You know, you can you can have great insights along the way and that will teach you. Okay. Yes. So moment of astrology. Oh, sorry, do you want to say something? Go no, ahead. No, I was going to say there that, that um, it's so interesting you've seized on that theme. Um, and I've, there's a quote from Ficino that backs that up, um, actually, about often those who are unlearned in the art will make a surprising interpretation. It's that um, the, you, you, it's, a, it's an interesting double bind, Dan, because uh, once you get fascinated by astrology and you see something of its power very, very early on in, when, in your contact with it, and you're amazed by it, which I was and I think many people getting into it are, um, you then begin to learn more and more about it and you can't then stop learning and progressing and looking at other techniques and studying it more and more. But the odd thing is that uh, the truthful result isn't guaranteed by techniques. Um, <laughs> and so um, and, and that's a, that is an error that Western minds can easily fall into, thinking that it requires a mastery of masses of techniques to be good. In fact, the the great moves are often very, very simple. And that's why I admire someone like William Lilly. You see some of the simplicity, actually, and purity of the symbolism. And it comes back to often very, very simple observations of planets and signs and things of that nature, very close to sun sign astrology. So you get the odd dilemma that there are some people with a real gift at spotting people's sun signs and coming up with the absolute apt way of describing that and you think well, that's really good astrology it's like your woman you're talking about the saleswoman with the, the Aries um, it doesn't need to be amazingly sophisticated but having said that with due diligence as Ficino says you will go on and have you have to master the craft that does require work so it's odd the two things go together you do work at it but you're never so foolish as to think that the work guarantees the result result is always some re remarkable type of grace that does inhabit the soul of each of us, some grace and inner intuition. And that's where the um, thinkers like Ficino are so important for us, that understanding yes, and, inner grace. Yes, and I, I'm sorry, what was the last word you said? Yeah, just the understanding when the inner grace, your grace, it, it becomes an inward knowing. It's yes, but it's a gift to you actually, and you you you're honoured to have it, and it's but it is yours to create with as well. It's a very odd thing. Have you created it? Have the gods created it? Well, we can't say it. It lies in this mysterious betweenness of things. Yes, and here you know I've prepared a bunch of different inspirational quotes from literature and poetry, and this is from Mary Oliver. She says, you can have the other words, chance, luck, coincidence, serendipity, I'll take grace. I don't know what it is exactly, but I'll take it. Oh, that's so, lovely. Again, that's lovely isn't it, yeah, yes. isn't it though? Because it, we have to have the grace to accept these inspired divinatory moments. Um, and, you know, interestingly, this gets into, and I don't know if we have time, we really don't have time to explore this, but the idea of just pure chance actually being meaningful. And one um, author who brought this up for me is Thomas Pynchon, who wrote Gravity's Rainbow, which is a crazy novel. Uh, it's like seven, and that, you know, people should check this out. But actually he knows some astrology, very reclusive writer, but he says the operations of a god are no different than chance. So, and then the end of the book for people, it ends with a tower reading, Kabbalah, 
And, you know, Gravity's Rainbow is all about rockets firing off, and it's pre-World War II, World War II, and it's just this crazy, zany book. But yeah. there's this concept of if the rocket really hits, well, what happens? And it even gets into something called Poisson distribution, which is chance. But if the, <laughs> there's a funny line that, um, you know, somebody asks, well, what if the rocket hits and it, you know, throws off the Earth, and then the guy says, it'll change the signs, dummy. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> so I, yeah, it's just a little bit of funny. And I do have the exact quote um, of the Ficino that you were um, talking about. Through whatever art future things may be investigated, they're foretold more completely out of a certain gift of the soul than through judgment. Here often those unlearned in the art judge more truthfully than those who are learned the truthfulness of the judgment is not so much through scrutiny of the stars as by a certain foreknowledge innate to you. So this gets into time. And, you know, we're, we're really introducing these ideas. Um, well, not intro. I mean, these aren't our, our ideas. But they're, you know, we're trying to put these ideas out there for people to investigate. And then also one, there are a couple characters who are going to come up in this interview that you talk about in the book, um, Pico and Ficino. And we're going to get into them. But then one rejoinder to what you're saying about Sunshine, another book I'm going to be bringing in is Thomas Hardy's The Mayor of Casterbridge, because he really uses a lot of beautiful symbolism around the sun, moon, and stars, and the universe, and all this. Um, so I'm going to be bringing him in today as well. A lot of a lot of writers coming in today. So, but right. and that's, yes, that's yes. Uh, so let, but actually, you were um, you had wanted to, and then again, go to Astro Divination. This is the S. This is Angelical Consorts, and it was it's from the Bulletin um, from the Company of Astrologers, but it's online. It was June 2002, which interestingly we're having a nodal lunar node return <laughs> to that date. So this theme is coming back up. Yes, but you I address... explain, Dan, I should explain yeah. to people that that yes. 2002 meeting was the 400th anniversary of Lily's birth. Right. We had this celebration. So to be back on a nodal return of that celebration does connect us to Lily's own nativity in a certain way, in a certain curious way that we astrologers move. Okay. Okay, so tell people a little bit about William Lilly, how people might interpret his work, what he did, and how you think maybe people really should be interpreting his work. Well, the rediscovery is an odd word to use, but uh, um, in the 1960s, say, or 50s, um, very few astrologers had seen Lilly's original Christian astrology, his uh, very important textbook. Um, 1647. Um, people hadn't seen the book. They'd seen it in a, a reduced form uh, produced by Zadkiel in the 19th century with uh, quite pared down. There are merits to Zadkiel's work, but it doesn't give you the range of Lily. And so um, the rediscovery of um, um, Lily led to a definite impetus in uh, the revival of horary astrology in uh, the UK and I was very active in that. And that paralleled the movement and seemed to be synchronistic with the movement to recover historical texts that led to our hat in the States and, and, and over in the UK. So there's this huge resurgence of interest in um, inverted commas traditional astrology. And the interesting thing about Lilly is the practicality of his work as demonstrated in his textbook is it's not difficult to apply. It's very easy to get moved by it. And uh, he has such good 
craft and it, he's such a good teacher that it does turn people on it's a you wouldn't think a big dusty book from the 17th century could have that impact but it does now in the hands of um, um, good astrologers something happens with that material and we were very influenced by um, a self-taught horror astrologer called Derek Appleby who was one of the four founders of the company of astrologers uh, way back in 1983 um, and we were all very active in the Astrological Lodge of London and that whole scene in, in London astrology was buzzing with uh, horary and traditional astrology and um, that impetus has come through powerfully. There is a stream of influence then from um, some doughty horrorists in the States who, who kept the flag of horary astrology alive against the grain really and, and in particular Ivy Goldstein Jacobson important American astrologer but then also Mark Edmund Jones so it's not as if this wasn't known in the States but the horary revival had a real impact on inspiring people to investigate the tradition full stop and begin to translate the earlier texts anyway and it all went together and I think you see it's often said that there was a reaction at that time to the power of psychological astrology which had really coming in strongly and so you you then get a counter movement of people who would be perhaps more wary of psychologizing astrology there's a, there's a big big debate there which we could get into and so you get this counter movement back to a more rigorous tradition more rigorous craft form of older astrology and so um that really stirred things up in the uh, 60s and 70s and then the republication of Lily's text was really in 1985 was really a major moment and a lot of astrology is taken off from that point and now in a way Lily's been left behind people have gone back to an earlier tradition that he comes from the mm -hmm. one thing you realize with Christian astrology is how um, for a start its name he does he's not a philosopher his style isn't philosophical but he is actually suggesting and he makes it very clear in certain in his um, essay to the beginner in astrology to the student that you are dealing with something that is an angelic discourse and that has uh, um, can fully fit with Christian and religious belief full stop you see so he, mm -hmm. he would want to see that parted so it's the last period in our history when you could get this clear equation that astrology is also spiritual and religious mm -hmm. as well as being practical and you know having true practical benefit for humankind and of course he's right he's famous for some of his predictions and stuff like that which we can go into if you want but that's another whole podcast right well and, and to put this in context well first of all you know i live in the american south which is very religious and i have people who are christians and i don't think their pastors would like this but they come to me so there is there doesn't have to be a mutual exclusivity of astrology with religion um and i want to hold that point a little bit because that's what lots of people have really criticized about certain forms of astrology that it is deterministic that it can be scientific that we're just rendering a straight judgment whereas in this essay that you know again you can get on astro divination this angelical consorts that was celebrating the 400th um you know year of lily uh that an, an enchanted world versus a disenchanted world so with you talk about post scientific enlightenment none of us can think straight I, you know and ironically because we've been gifted with um the age of enlightenment 
because things can be replicated so much more easily, like electricity or planes, there's no kind of enchanted narrative thread, um, you know, amongst it all. So it's very, you know, we live in a very uh, disenchanted world in that sense. You know, we, we're given the gift of, in many ways, stability of, you know, electricity or whatever, air conditioning in many parts of the world, but that doesn't give us enchantment. Um, so that that's right, what you're really touching on in this speech about um, enchantment versus disenchantment and the need to perhaps revive enchantment and imagination. Yes. Yes, um, I know in a way it's like a huge oversimplification, but there is a divide in, in um, um, human history and especially Western history um, of a um, pre and post scientific enlightenment. And and you can say that broadly speaking, the nature of culture prior to the scientific enlightenment is already an enchanted culture even in the medieval times the renaissance times and earlier times there's a sense of um, the place of humanity in some greater order of things some cosmic order where there is the divine and it, this interpenetrates our reality this would be natural thinking for everyone in an earlier age now in that sort of age astrology does find a true place and home and it has its work to do in that order as we move into another mode of thought altogether that's given us such great gifts and in it and we are all children of it and i know in no way ever want to revert and, and deny the truth of the enlightenment but that gives us a terrible dilemma because we gain the world but uh, in danger of losing our soul that's that's what uh, wow. happens so we don't have a language of the soul anymore mm. and then it gets locked up into parts of religion that become embattled and embittered even and that, that uh, become fundamentalist to try and protect themselves mm -hmm. against this overwhelming tide and so you don't even get I think good religion coming out of this because it becomes defensive religion mm -hmm. that's a, so so there is a so there is a problem there right and we're going to get into the arguments that have been marshaled against astrology from religion from science um, just in general, and you know, touch on those. I mean, there's a lot to that, but I'm trying to, yeah, <laughs> we keep getting off track, which is good. I, you know, it's, I think it's good to think discursively and allow the moment of astrology to unfold here. But I've, let's get back to just the cover of the moment of astrology. When you pick up the book, you'll see the cover. Um, and it's, well, actually, just briefly, did you select this um, image for the cover, or was it somebody else's idea, or... No, I did. Um, I, I came across the image and thought it was okay. a beautiful one um, okay. and got the permission to use it. And, okay. and by, in a sense, a completely magical coincidence, the, the, per, the person I've worked with on the, all the university work, Angela Voss, who's quite an academic of Ficino, she at the same time had been communicated this, this picture by a colleague in, in, uh, in America who sent mm -hmm. it to her at the very same time that I was getting this uh, picture together for the book. Um, it, it is very strange and it represents a, a wonderful glimpse of, of this other world that the Renaissance magicians, humanists, whatever we call mm -hmm. them, lived in. It is an absolutely divine picture. Yeah, okay. So, and uh, let's, yes. yes. So the image itself is, 
what we think is Father Time, it's um, a man holding an hourglass, and then who we think is Orpheus with a lyre sitting yeah. next to him with the sun. Um, I don't know, is it setting or rising well, over the horizon? A, or a, yes, you see, um, if it's rising, that it could, some would say, it's stormy <laughs> with a red light there, but I think it did, I believe it is rising. It truly mm-hmm. is, because it's from that moment of the sun appearing that the mm-hmm. time can be demarcated with the hourglass. Mm. And that's why. But either way, either rising or setting, it's it's the sun dominates. The the eye of the sun there is staring mm. through into our reality. Mm-hmm. So it's highly it's a wonderful illustration. Yes. And what it's because the title of the book is The Moment of Astrology Origins and Divination. What what is that type of astrology like potentially? Ah. <laughs> I, I know, I know. These are big, um, you know, but the, that 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 feel of ritual and music, um, and you know, I have um, some literary examples on my end. But just what 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 simply does this mean to sort of convene with a moment in time, the here now? That it's not so much about you know looking into the future and making a determination about that. What 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 is the what what is that astrology like? We're talking about um, a mystical understanding, a mystical knowing, aren't we, in a sense? And the thing about this is, it is both most pious and spiritual and holy, and it is most common and with us everywhere as well. So one, it's it's very interesting. One wouldn't, I wouldn't want to convey a sense that this is a highly ritualized way of looking at astrology which is uh, treats everything as sacred and is being um, um, picking around everything as if in a delicate way it's not really like that because it's the very stuff of our life that we are constantly being reminded of by this way that symbolism works and comes true in our life and little coincidences show us other truths it's constantly there and we keep missing it and then we're reminded of it at certain moments and once you live life as an astrologer, where you're paying attention to the planets, you will catch yourself out or catch yourself and be brought back to this sort of moment. Mm. But uh, So I don't want to give it, um, aggrandize it. On the other hand, it is an extraordinary thing that there is this other reality at work. What it points to, Dan, and I think m- most people will recognize the metaphysical position that, that is implied here, it's that reality is not quite as it seems and there is the ordinary sensory reality that we are incarnated into that is our task to work into we 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 are here embodied it's our bodily work to live on the planet and work and do things and be uh, and understand things we have to do that and yet under that is the across current of threads of meaningfulness that we that we half glimpse we half glimpse and we suspect that this is what the mystics must know. They must know this full on, but we might not be able to know that full on. But we have glimpses of it given to us and we recognize the vessels in our lives. For some people, it is music and poetry. Very definitely are the vessels that bring this to them. For the astrologer, it's their practical work with symbols, which is a practical, ordinary craft. It's in the world, but that brings to them this sense of this other reality. Now, that becomes quite a practical matter, and I hope this isn't jumping too far ahead. Stop me if it is. No, let's go ahead. Um, that that it's 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 interesting for a, a thoughtful astrologer 
to look at their moments of experience and what the experience is like, what it's like to have that moment of recognition, because it's a definite cognitive mode and your, your mind switches over. I'm sure the uh, physiologists, the neuroscientists would be able to measure it in terms of a change in the alpha and beta rhythms and this, that and changes between the two brain hemispheres. But you know it because you're suddenly gripped by a little piece of symbolism or you you laugh at a piece of symbolism. You've known it. You know it. You don't just think about it rationally. You know it and you, in a true sense, enjoy it. You joy with it. Even when it's quite dark symbolism, that's why you get this weird thing that astrologers sort of have an accident of some sort. The first thing they do is time it. And then mm. they're delighted if they see something like Saturn, then they've, they've knocked their knee or something. They think, oh, great, look at that Saturn transit. Also. And it's that peculiar way that they've allowed this other reality to cross thread into our lives. And that leads to when you know that in an interpretation with a client or for yourself, I've used the phrase a, a realization. You realize the symbolism. And we do this most of the time with our natal chart. You, you'll you know you're a Leo with a strong Jupiter on a, on a trine. You'll know that as a piece of rational information. And you'll chug along with that as the way you are. But sometimes you really know it and you catch yourself out again, being exactly like that and knowing I am. Ah, that is that in me. Isn't that me? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a most curious thing. So I invite astrologers to look more at the moments of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it's those moments of interpretation that are the moments of astrology. It's the, mm-hmm. the moment at which a symbol crosses over this threshold of reality and the second different and subtle reality reveals itself to you. And that has a definite effect on, on you, on your imagination. And if you don't get that when you start astrology, you won't continue with astrology. I mean, you can't just go ploughing on. Uh, in a purely rational vein uh, and a, a mm-hmm. mechanical sort of vein doing astrology, it'd be, it'd be a way, big waste of time. You must find mm-hmm. some other way of being creative. So every astrologer I feel who's last in astrology knows this and discovers it. But that's where, that's where, and I hope I'm not going making a monologue of this, Dan, um, as rational theories about astrology are a poor fit for the actual experience of astrology, mm-hmm. a poor right. fit. And that does mean we misdescribe it. And for all our best efforts, we then misteach it or teach it in a way that hinders the um, appreciation of this. So so that is where that's me in a slightly more critical <laughs> mode, you see. Well, well we you have know, theories it, it, that don't match. Yeah. Sure. And th- this is, you know, I have a couple of rejoinders here. Um, th- this from your colleague, Angela Voss, this mode of perception will not regard stars and planets as causal agents, but as symbols which reflect back to the human soul. It's inextricable, excuse me, inextricable correspondence with the cosmos and one's astrological insight will depend on the ability and desire of the individual to tune in. And then we also get, um, you know, you know, Platonists, you know, from Plato, um, you know, the cosmos not seen as an object that could be scientifically explained. It was firstly a manifestation of the gods, a vast being, or as Plato put it, a living statue. Yes. So, yes. And then, in, you know, lastly with this, um, I was talking about the mayor of Casterbridge, um, which you were saying um, your partner Maggie loves, right? I just found out about this. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
the, and the Mayor of Casterbridge is a great work of classic literature, Thomas Hardy. And it's really a terrible story, but kind of, like you said, somewhat hilarious. But the mayor of Casterbridge, Henchard, he gets drunk at an outdoor fair. It takes place in the early 19th century and ends up selling his wife to another man. So it's ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> I mean, if your husband's going to do that, you might take your chance with another um, guy. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> it's ter- terrible. Um, and then, but then at the end, he gets his comeuppance and he ends up losing everything. And this this novel is a great exploration of fate, free will, the cosmos. Um, he ends ends up losing everything and everybody. And Hardy writes, all had gone from him one after another, either by his fault or by his misfortune. You know, and we can say either by his character or by the gods. However, but this is the next line, which I think brings us back to this original image on the cover of the book. In place of them, he had no interest, hobby or desire. If he could have summoned music to his his aid, his existence might even now have been born. For with Henshard, music was of regal power. The merest trumpet or organ tone was enough to move him, and high harmonies transubstantiated him. But hard fate had ordained that he should be unable to call up this divine spirit in his need. So we have a lot of things going on there, the need of music or something to move the soul. But, you know, it is his fault. I mean, he's this guy who sold his wife to another man. (laughs) Um, And he does have misfortune of fate. You know, he doesn't have any hobbies or any interests that touch the soul. So there's this interrelationship between all of these elements, fate, free will, you know, all this stuff. But that, you know, again, I think we're getting on to what the cover of Moment of Astrology communicates in this and what you're saying, which is we do have the, you know, this very corporeal sense of life, you know, we're in these bodies, but that there is this other realm that's unknowable, maybe through science. But yet in the moment of divination, we're given a brief glimpse into that. And then the the stars influence us. It's a falling of the stars, not literally a causal thing, but going back to sort of the original definition of like an influenza or a fall or falling, yes. that we fall yes. for a moment, um, which, you know, I think the, um, you know, the cover beautifully um, suggests. There's one of the sonnets of Shakespeare that mentions the stars, which in secret influence comment, they comment. Mm-hmm. And they mm. comment secretly upon uh, <laughs> what, what, what is happening with it. So it is, in that sense, a mirror of the soul. Mm. No, it's marvellous the uh, the uh, analogy and expression you give from um, Thomas Hardy. That that is very beautiful, Dan, um, and and it raises a beautiful dilemma of a question, because we have to we have to take responsibility for trying to um, honour that music or find that way. And if we don't then we certainly will, over a lifetime, harden our souls so that we we cannot succeed, we cannot have happiness if our souls become hard. As to whether one was fated to become hard, that's such an impossible question to answer, and I, I certainly don't think an astrologer can dare to think they know that answer from the horoscope. It, that belongs to another order. One has to hope that every soul has the power to, um, to make that movement, and, and that's what the great religious traditions do teach that every soul has, does have that capacity and must must be allowed to have that capacity. Must be. Yes. Them. Yes. And to, to again bring it back to the image, but move forward. 
Take for, okay, so let's go back in time to the Oracle at Delphi. Everybody will remember the famous Oracle. Um, so you actually talk about in Moment of Astrology under what circumstances and auspices that people went to see the Oracle. And it was this combination, kind of what we're touching on about, you know, the Oracle who was believed to utter the first hexameters of poetic verse. Um, and then it would be interpreted, but these were matters, sacred matters, but also of what one should do, what would be prudent action to take, not necessarily just rendering a prediction, although certainly that is part of it as well. But could you touch a little bit about what was going on at Delphi? I mean, maybe, you know, the Oracle was probably under some kind of influence as we know now. Um, but, you know, there's this still this mixture of poetry, but then very real application in life and maybe how one should move. Yes, I mean, the, the, these questions of the problems of oracles were, were well known to the Greek philosophers, including Plutarch, who's a marvelous philosopher of divination, um, if anyone is interested in him. Um, he was a temple, he was one of the temple staff actually at Delphi and he lived in the late period of its decline and was looking back onto what had happened. But Plutarch certainly would understand that um, there isn't a simple either or of how the oracle works. So it's interesting, I think you hinted at the, under the influence, I mean, people think that they, there were vapours that were rising up, that were influencing the Pythia or that they might have been in a semi-epileptic fit and all sorts of uh, all sorts of rational reasons are given. But really, uh, those reasons don't cancel things out or whatever state they're in, mm -hmm. something happens at Delphi whereby people are moved by the God in some way. Now we can reduce it and reduce it and reduce it, but we cannot understand it unless we have that sense that is true for all ancient peoples. Um, um, really, in all all people except our little bubble of, of civilization misses the point uh, of this connection with a divine realm of things, where, where there is some otherness, sacred otherness, that we have we, we are bound to be with in some way and work with and participate in. So all the, the, the when they go to the oracles, they're they're very often practical questions with practical outcomes. But they're always crouched in the form of how does this square with the divine, i.e. Mm. is the God willing? So um, it, it's not a, an, a requesting a prediction about what the God says will happen. It's putting oneself in alignment with the divine in order to take one's action. That's the function of priestly authority to do that. Mm -hmm. That's a very cathartic idea, actually, a very very much the initiative. Human beings do take initiatives, but they put those initiatives also in the hands of the gods. Now, it's a curious participation at work, and it's hardly conceivable to modern Western mind, the mindset in which that's done. So you'll each time get, I mean, it happens often to even to good scholars try to think back to this. They're going to miss what it is like to live that way. Who are the people who know how that might be more likely to be? Well, there'll be modern poets, artists and diviners will get, get what that's like to live that way, because we still are actually recreating the same understanding in ourselves by, by being practitioners of astrology or by being diviners and by being symbolists and living in this other soul enriching state of imagination. So, of course, we, we 
we we can impute all sorts of things to the to antiquity we can't quite get in their skins of course we can't but we know it's going to be somewhat on this line that we can re-experience ourselves there is a connection of humanity all the way through here but we've lost the way of thinking about these things now we describe them in a different way now we reduce them you know it's interesting a book that comes to mind is I think it's called Harun and Other Sea Stories by Salman Rushdie, of all people. But it was, I think, written for his son. It was almost like a children's book work of literature. But the theme is about what happens if you live in a disenchanted, purely materialistic, rationalist worldview versus if you have a more enchanted worldview. And it's about um, the son tries to help his father get his voice back or his creativity back. It's a wonderful little book. Um, but so let's again stay back in time but astrology with you talk about ptolemy uh, well actually one thing could you just briefly you, you said katarkic but that could you define the word for people katarki and what what that is right um there's a whole um anciently a whole branch of astrology was called uh, um katarki uh which was the astrology of um initiatives, inception moments, human initiatives, setting out on a journey, which we would now call an inception. Um, and it was also horary interrogations. So that came under what was called kataki. Um, and the word does have an augural origin. It's actually related to the opening of the ceremony at which a ritual mm -hmm. sacrifice is made to the gods. Um, or it's uh, the word applied to the authority the one who leads the dance, the, the ritual dance, uh, that leading and initiating of the ritual dance is a kataki, is a beginning. So it has an augural connotation way back to Homer and earlier in the Greek. Mm. We're mm -hmm. clearly reflecting a very ancient understanding here. So this augural term uh, became ported over into astrology. And it's quite clear, therefore, that the early astrologers would have were closer to an augural approach to the art than we sometimes imagine. Because you see, Greek science also is a tremendous powerful force in the same period. Greek's understanding of uh, mathematics and the nature of reality is extraordinary. And, and, and this more scientific cosmos, it's not like modern science at all, but this view of an ordered cosmos where one could learn through mathematics, the, the movements of the planets and the powers of nature itself was already the beginning of human beings feeling that they have this tremendous knowledge and command of things. Mm -hmm. And you get a much more deterministic astrology when you couple Greek science and mathematics together with ancient augury. Even so, the early the Hellenistic astrologers still live in a universe that's rich with soul and the divine, unlike unlike post-enlightenment astrologers. Mm -hmm. are, you know, post-enlightenment astrologers have to struggle to get back to that understanding. It's there, but it's covered over all the time. So in that universe, you see, um, one can say that uh, you treat omens of astrology are in a similar category to the omens that are given to us by the gods in, in all forms of omen reading. That's why origins in divination points to the fact that actually the craft of astrology itself, I'm asserting, has very strong originating place in uh, augury and the, and the observation of signs. Mm -hmm. Signs, not in the astrological sense, but in the uh, meaningful omen sense, observation of omens. 
Yes. And one more word to throw in there along with Katarki is Kairos, which is an opportune moment. Um, and then, yes. As opposed and that, to Kronos. So out, <laughs> out of the orders, out of the orders of objective time laid out to us that right. we can measure with a clock, which is the time right. of Kronos, mm -hmm. there is the actual moment of a decision that you make. The, the human moment is a, a moment of Kairos or should be out of that. Mm -hmm. We cannot mm -hmm. plan our creativity simply using Kronos, the act of creativity demands this cut across that's purely the unique gift of the soul or the mm -hmm. divine that's, that's given the soul that power, Kairos. And, and so that comes together with really a very cathartic understanding of astrology. But what goes together with this, and this is where I, obviously I get into particular theories and things that, that I'm interested in, um, what is essential to understand about that more ancient understanding is its uh, participatory nature. The diviner is participating up to the hilt in the materials. Mm -hmm. um, their, their whole being is laid out in this act. It's not something that you simply at a distance can manipulate as you might a calculator. Mm -hmm. It's not like that. How could it be like that? That's why it has a ritual component to it. You're engaged fully in this ritual of seeing this symbol. Yes, and it, it, I feel like horary astrology, and you know, this is for people to understand. This is very much astrology of the moment, the chart of the moment, as opposed to one's natal chart, the how the heavens were aligned at birth. But in a horary chart, you always take into account the state of the astrologer. So there can be some times where, okay, as an astrologer, I can't take this chart. The chart. I'm not in a good position to take it. Um, and as I understand it, some um, other astrologers, even you know, they would say, well, you're not you're not ready to read a chart. Like you have to try other mechanisms to figure out this issue for yourself. Um, so that that's a point to be made as far as the intertwining um, with, um, you know, charts and even with science, because science at least tries to say, OK, we have to do this double blind you know, that at least there's an acknowledgement of that in some way. But could we get to Ptolemy? What did right. Ptolemy give what did Ptolemy give us as a gift, but what did he give us as maybe a lump of coal? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's um it's a double thing here. It's it's both both good and bad at the same time because had Ptolemy not made his um, tremendous rationalization of astrology and horoscopic craft, especially natal, had he not done that, it's quite possible that astrology would have withered um, and simply died out. Um, it's difficult for people to astrologers to imagine that that could happen. But in fact, it, it was would be seen as incredible. There, there are, is a change of consciousness happening in that era, you know, by the second century AD. There is a big change occurring. We're coming out of archaic ways of thought into another way, order of thought that still accepts a divine cosmos. But the real important philosophy here behind Ptolemy is Aristotle, who who is mustn't just be simplified uh, um, as if he's uh, in any way a reductionist because Aristotle does teach of a divine cosmos but a divine ordered cosmos and he can give a rational and mathematical expression of that cosmos so Ptolemy actually really um, his philosophy is rooted very strongly in Aristotle and he brings over an Aristotelian interpretation of the way astrology works on the seeds 
at conception and then it reflected at the moment of birth to give a rational um, and physical explanation of the working of astrology and it matches Aristotelian metaphysics and Aristotle's sort of logic and understanding and so it's a very powerful vessel and it's a natural scientific model of astrology natural scientific according to Greek natural scientific principles now that's a pretty amazing achievement and you see Ptolemy is also a tremendous astronomer uh, and geographer and he's a very powerful figure so the authority of him then dealing with horoscopy as a valid form of interpreting influences working on us from birth onwards uh, carries all the authority of Aristotle with it and of Greek science with it and it holds the field and what then happens is more supernatural magical or religious understandings of astrology get pushed back into the background that get subsumed and various mm -hmm. practices of astrology that appear more obviously divinatory and oracular such as horary astrology they too become they tend to slip in status and Ptolemy doesn't really like them that's quite clear because he's promoting a, a, a natural scientific model but you see so in one sense you, the whole classical tradition of astrology does flow from that rationalization made by Ptolemy very largely um, and certainly medieval astrology depends on the authority of Ptolemy mm -hmm. so in that sense I'm a, a, a critic of the whole classical tradition it's a terrible state to be in of course but um, there are other critics in, um, of that tradition but in criticizing it I'm also acknowledging that had he not done that astrology wouldn't have had a successful form to go into medieval science and survive in medieval mm -hmm. science and survive right. through to the modern age and therefore one sees that Ptolemy offers a vessel which enables astrology to to work and continue and is very successful it's successful until the dispelling of the Ptolemaic cosmos and the Aristotelian underpinning of it that, that happened from figures like Galileo uh, mm -hmm. on this and you know the, the whole discovery of the Copernicus Galileo the discovery of the nature of the cosmos undermines that that beautiful natural scientific construction of mm -hmm. Aristotle and Ptolemy and then where it smashes it really and then astrologers who've relied on that for their scientific authority are left bereft once we come past the enlightenment there's nothing there's no physical basis that they physical scientific and mathematical basis they can rest their astrology on Mm -hmm. um, so do you see it's a marvellous um, put positively what Aristotle and Ptolemy achieve is a marvellous combining of a divine cosmos orderly highly ordered and, and scientific in terms of spiritual science or medieval science right and would you say also you know on a more simplistic note Ptolemy gives us this conception of the self as reflected in the natal the birth chart so it's something we can both look to not necessarily as an objective document so in other words you have your moment of birth and that can be objectively rendered in some sort of interpretation but that we have that conceptual framework and then in a moment of astrology almost like reading a book or um, playing a piece of music it becomes alive yes i think you're right Ptolemy and Aristotle for the classical tradition they give the credibility and, and rational basis for you doing this thing 
And then when you do this thing, it's up to you for this creative understanding to burst through. Because if if I were to say to you or say to um, a, a, a Greek intellectual of, or Roman intellectual that um, the whole thing is simply omen reading uh, when I do it, so that the horoscope at birth is a set of omens that I, I regard as occurring at birth. That's going to be even even at that period, it's going to sound a bit crazy. Uh, whereas if you say this is part of the whole pattern of the ordered movement of the heavens and the influences over the whole planetary cycles that beam down upon us through the influence of the planets on. And that's a perfectly reasonable um, explanation. It still means that you are then actually reading the horoscope in this more ancient way and then grasping the, the true significance as it as you realize it in the way that we've been talking about but you've now been permitted to do that by this scientific reasonable structure and the, and the proof of that is what i just suggested there i'm sort of proof is that that model can survive uh, religious attack because christianity itself under the uh, thomas you know with aquinas and the late, late medieval christians accepted that there's a perfect role for this influence from the hymns on the physical body at that bodily level. The one sin for, of the astrologer will be if they declare that their astrology allows them to dictate the nature of the movement of the soul, mm -hmm. because that means that, that the soul, it, you see that saying that the soul is bound by the stars, well that produces an immediate heresy. Mm -hmm. But if you say that we are bodily influenced in our natures and even in our natures, uh, by the stars, that's all part of uh, medieval science. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the gift that um, uh, Ptolemy achieved for astrology. So who is to say that he shouldn't have done that, you see? <laughs> that's, that's, what his, that's what's been given to us. But that's not going to carry us through now. That doesn't work because that system, that old cosmos has gone. Mm -hmm. Now that means you know, we're stuck on something. We're stuck. We have to move. You know, it, it's interesting because it's like I'm Janice. It's <laughs> there's two heads, and then that, you know that's a gateway. But there's um, you know you have the Ptolemaic conception, which is the moment of birth, moving towards more of a natural science. But then the old, more divinatory reading. But then you can have both. You can have like a horary chart, and then you can still see how your natal chart fits into that. So there doesn't oh. necessarily happen. But you have to, you know, you have to accept that the brain kind of wants to function in a binary and it's going to be this back and a forth um, dialectic. And yes, then no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and that's quite a difficult pitch to immediately argue the case for, isn't it? I'm sure you see one, one has to have this double conception, really. Mm -hmm. um, yes, the, because you have to be able to have rational explanation for what you're doing where you constantly theorize we, we have to justify it and you have authorities that help you justify it and then the actual living creativity of it bursts through in the middle of that but this due diligence of the craft then does come from observing there does have to be a consistent communicable rational form given to it you know you have to have rules that you teach people to do the astrology by they have to learn it the meanings are given and handed down this is all perfectly rational um, but then you take off the the astrologer at that point takes off and the, the real work is done mm -hmm. yes and all right we're going to go forward in time although yeah. we're not talking we're not talking about the philosophy of time here but let's go with linear time for a minute 
there have been a lot of attacks against astrology, um, but it's, you know, it's always good to, you have to look at, to challenge oneself, you know, what, what are the skeptical arguments? So a lot of people, as you, you know, you touched a little bit on the religious attacks um, and, you know, we could go more into that, but really moment of astrology focuses on humanists, um, Renaissance humanists, um, specifically Pico della Mirandola, and also perhaps more a famous figure, Marsilio Ficino, who was, we've already touched on, but who was one of the progenitors of the Renaissance. Um, so why were they mad at astrologers? What, you know, what were they objecting to? Right, right. I'm going to have to go back to an earlier attack in order to answer you that, and back okay. to the basis of the religious attacks. Okay. Um, you see, I believe that it, for those of us who want to theorize about astrology or teach about it and be historians of it, philosophers of it, and I, I'm in that category really, we have to take on board that what their opponents say and why it is they say it. So one of the greatest attacks on astrology is that of St. Augustine, mm -hmm. because um, he uh, had a tradition that comes off Cicero, is equally skeptical. Mm -hmm. But he also has a double attack because his, his attack is both scientific. He know, knows the scientific problems of astrology, problems of twins and stuff like that. And he also knows the uh, theological and religious arguments about astrology. In particular, um, Augustine would say that just, I'm, I'm paraphrasing vastly to try and simplify it before I come to uh, the Renaissance of Ficino. Mm -hmm. Augustine would say that uh, you astrologers are ignorant of the nature of the psychic power that enters into you mm. at the moment that you do have the moment of astrology. He's yes. perfectly aware of what I've talked about, that moment of realisation. Augustine is perfectly aware of that. He says, don't you realise you're not clear, you're muddled in your thinking because there are many, many influences coming in psychically to you. Some of them are not of pure intention. Um, how do you know what's a good spirit as opposed to a bad spirit that's entering you at that point? And he is talking mm. that spirit demonic way. And in fairness to Augustine, you see, uh, at that period in um, um, evolution of uh, religious thought, a great many ordinary people would think that plagues and disasters and things are sent by God through the diamonds to punish us. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he, he sends bad diamonds and illnesses down upon us as a punishment. Now, we don't want to think that way these days, but you can see why uh, for the early Christians, the idea that the um, heavens are determining how you decide your relationship with the divine mm. God, that's dreadful. And he sees, Augustine will say that that's how really a satanic influence will work in you because it will pervert your soul until your soul believes that it's governed by the stellar motions. And that's the first move to direct your soul away from looking at God. Mm. So you can see the theology of it. But the importance of that attack isn't that, I mean, I don't agree with Augustine for lots of profound reasons, uh, learned though he is. But what's important is astrologers don't know usually how to answer that. They don't even think. A lot of ordinary astrologers fall back on a natural scientific Aristotelian Ptolemaic explanation, say, oh, no, 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 we're not in any way dealing with supernatural forces without accepting that we are, in fact, dealing with the forces that produce grace and revelation in life and that is oh. spiritual and without being able to develop a spiritual argument in defence. The arguments used in defence of astrology are natural scientific ones, 
the great attacks on astrology come from a spiritual uh, a declaration of the spiritual nature of astrology which is being read by augustine as as large, largely leading to ill effects not good effects because bad spirits get in now whether or not one agrees with augustine one should take on board that statement because we are dealing with um, an intermediate realm of the psycho-spiritual where where you can't demarcate where your consciousness ends and some inspiration from somewhere is coming in and how you therefore live your life and the attitude you have to um, this these divine other beings is crucial and if you're just slack about that slack or selfish or lazy you're going to get infected by this material mm. now that, that's like people who do like low, low magic and think they can just easily do low magic to get results mm-hmm. and you'll know a lot of that new orleans won't you this sort of yeah that's what i was just going to say so um right so i don't want to move too quickly but in no, I want to go one, to Pacino, you see. Yes. Well, I, I'm going to draw, I'm going to talk about New Orleans a little bit and what goes on here, but just briefly, and we've talked about this, but um, when we're talking about Pico de la Mirandola, astrologers, you talk about a story, and it's hard to know if it's true or not, but the lesson is still the same. They actually predicted his death, and yeah. that puts us in a very difficult, terrible ethical position with astrology. And probably one where when you you say in the book, when you put this to astrologers, it's no hard. Nobody wants to stay there predicting death, you know, because if there is a kind of electional ability to try to change the outcome, well, you know, it's if somebody's burning in a house, you're going to send a fire engine down there. So why, yeah. why would you? I mean, it's yeah. a pretty basic point. But yes, I have. So I live in New Orleans. I actually live. It's the Crescent City, and I live across from the French Quarter. And for people who don't know, the French Quarter, it's an extraordinary slice of the moon as de- expressed through land. And you, I don't know if there's anywhere like it in the world where you have people just sitting out up and down the street on Jackson Square doing tarot readings. Um, you know, there, it, there's probably every form of religion and spirituality represented here in this city, but I live across the river in what used to be a Masonic temple, and I, I work here, and it's it's a very different experience, and I, I feel a little bit protected from some of those energies where I hear a lot of you know the people over in the French Quarter predicting death, and I really have I warn people who come here because oftentimes they come to New Orleans almost on a spiritual pilgrimage. They go see several psychics. You know, then they come to see me um, and sometimes I have to do cleanup work because these horrific things people tell them, deterministic predictions that will come to pass. And this is essentially what, um, from what you were saying before, divorcing astrology from some sort of spiritual orientation. Um, But what what Pico and Ficino were really objecting to. But talk a little bit about that, if you would. Okay. yes. so Ficino is the um, teacher, really, of, um, of Pico. So I think there's a 29-year difference between them. I think it's something like that, the Saturn return. But um, and in fact, Ficino calls him uh, uh, calls Ficino calls Pico a sublime son of Saturn. Mm-hmm. Um, now these two these two really f- form a, a, a train of neoplatonic thinking that that underlies the platonic academy in florence um 
Ficino was funded by the Medicis to begin a tremendous program of translation of the uh, Hermetic Corpus and, and Plato and Iamblichus, um, major, major Greek texts which, which had only ever existed in the Greek. And many people in Europe didn't even know of the existence of these texts, but they came over from Byzantium and with the Arabs, these texts. And Pico Ficino began this tremendous program of translation. So that's the first thing. He is then, in any case, um, very involved in um, uh, magical musical therapy. Mm -hmm. You see the idea of the harmony yes. of the spheres and the actual music that heals using planetary Mm -hmm. The planet says part of the healing, so we, we don't know a lot about that. But Angela Voss is quite my colleague; is is really a, a world expert on that, and has reconstructed some of the ritual and the music that Regina and the Sonic Academy has practiced. So they saw themselves as going back behind the medieval period to much earlier origins of Christianity, and then back into the ancient world and restoring an ancient wisdom that is expressed uh, most perfectly in, for them in the Hermetic Canon, the Hermetic Writings, Hermes Trismegistus. Mm -hmm. That takes us into another whole podcast. But that type <laughs> of understanding, uh, the Hermetic um, Neoplatonic understandings, are much more magical and imaginal than are the um, Aristotelian and Ptolemaic and natural scientific approaches, you see. So the Middle Ages does become very governed by Aristotelian thought, and Plato, who was much less known at that time, is recovered by um, the Platonic Academy. So you have Pacino doing this work, and they immediately see the spiritual and sacred depth of astrology. Mm. And they find themselves in contention with astrologers who are naive and have little understanding of their own history for a start, who then adopt the power of the, as if they're talking like great oracles of the sacred of the past, and yet um, backed by the science of Aristotle and the stars. So they've done an odd combination that they can say to somebody, my craft isn't simply like um, a mere superstitious fortune teller, it is science and it is, uh, has mm. Aristotle behind it, and I can make determinations of the length of your life, and I can tell you about life and death and such things. And the... Um, Pacino and Pico were appalled at the deterministic nature of a lot of the astrology of their time. Mm -hmm. And they call the astrologers petty ogres who fake who their clients with their um, predictions. And so they're claiming the power of oracles and science at the same time. And it's because they don't have a good grasp, really, philosophically or spiritually, of what they're doing. So that's a major criticism of the way the classical tradition had fallen. I will say fallen, really. It isn't, mm. I mustn't blame Ptolemy and Aristotle for this. It, it, it gets misunderstood very fundamentally. There are other threads here that go back to Stoicism and other very interesting threads. But basically, it's that attack on determinism and reductionism that they're making. And really, they're, they're coming at it as a position as practicing magicians, high magicians, mm. but, mm -hmm. but with a sense of the spiritual and sacred and ritual truth of everything. And they're then coming to astrology with that understanding. At the same time, um, Pacino is, is a well-practiced astrologer. He's a perfectly competent craft astrologer. So he does mm -hmm. the, he understands the practice of astrology and uses it. But it's always to this higher purpose. Mm -hmm. Now, um, 
Pico is more scorching. And, and <laughs> you know, I'd, I have this. I have moment of astrology right in front of me. This is I, this is pretty much the first page, and you have a quote from. You know, things are really heated today, but you know, this I, things were really. I, I mean, you know, I, I just, astrology. Yeah, I, I mean, know. so I'm, you know, take for example. Um, you know, it was, I have a musical background, so Bach would, like, get in a duel in the middle of the street with a sword, or you think of, like, shootouts, but this is what Pico was writing to give an idea of the sort of invective that people were engaging in. The writings of astrologers intrude everywhere. They corrupt philosophy, adulterate medicine, weaken religion, strengthen idolatry, destroy prudence, pollute customs, blight the heavens, and make men anxious, unquiet, and unfortunate in all things. So th these weren't like it wasn't like let's get together and have a spirited conversation. Yeah. I mean these they were like these this literally was life and death. I mean the, the astrologers predicting death and then back to your point about you must under you know what the magicians were saying you have to understand maybe the psychic power that you're Stop levying. Any prediction, any prediction carries psychic force. Right. Spiritual consequence. And that is so absolutely summarized in the fact that Pico then, who wrote against the astrologers, um, was then attacked by three astrologers of Florence. And it is a historical, there is historical record, this is so. Three astrologers of Florence predicted his death for him before the age of 33. He was still a young man, you see, at the time. He was about 29, 30 at the time he was coming out with this stuff. Um, and he... he and he then died before his 33rd birthday and the astrologers claim this as a proof the proof despite his great intellect that acknowledged that he was a an absolutely inspiring intellectual um the stars spoke against him more truly by his death than any of against all his writings against the astrologers and to me they have so misunderstood the um what it means to make a prediction of death against somebody because they're a, because they're an intellectual or other enemy of you. This is like ethically the pits, isn't it? This mm -hmm. is not to understand the sacred nature of what you're doing. And you can un then understand, I know it's a, it's a funny back-to-front argument, you can understand why someone like Pika would be so angry with astrologers in the first place that they have that mindset that's going to then do that to him. Um, and that story got taken up uh, in the Annals of Astrology as a famous victory for astrology. Oh but dear. In astrology, it can be much questioned on all sorts of dimensions, but it's mostly questionable at that deep ethical level. Mm. You can see why Augustine is, in a sense, justified in some of his original attacks if this is the way astrologers carry on. Which is a, so I'm interested in the great moments of crisis in astrology like, like later on the humanist attack on astrology in, in our era because what it what it is they illuminate about our own self-understanding as astrologers do you see and i i, I tend yes. to think we're very weak in this ethical philosophical spiritual way of talking about astrology we are rather weak and i mean that with no disrespect to the many who've attempted this but um, we still flounder around, I'm afraid, and can't deal with these problems half the time. I'm actually interested aesthetically about humanism. So when you're talking about Ficino or Pico, we're talking about true Renaissance men. So those are the humanists, and they're attacking astrology in their time. You know, as we're saying, they're marshalling good arguments that we should consider. 
But then we fast forward to the 70s and the the modern humanism of the 70s. I'm interested aesthetically because I really spend a lot of excuse me a lot of time reading literature, poetry. You know, I do some singing. Uh, you know, I sang. <laughs> sing excerpts from Handel's Messiah in church, you know, this kind of stuff. I, you know, it's interesting because I don't, if I'm going to be attacked, I want to be attacked by Ficino, but the aesthetics of modern humanists, they don't strike me as very learned in the arts of poetry or literature or the humanities. I mean, you don't, you don't see modern humanists, like, it's very, like, because aesthetic means perception. It's not very pleasing to me. You know, you could have the worst, you know, the, the toughest arguments and one has to deal with them. But do you ever think about this? Modern humanism is not really being that aesthetically pleasing. Yes, and I haven't put it quite in that way. That's a, that's a very interesting way of putting it. That it's not even aesthetically pleasing. Um, <laughs> it doesn't attract. It doesn't attract the soul. It's mm-hmm. geared at. Um, it's geared at a rational argument that mm-hmm. is supposed to win the day, mm-hmm. without realizing that the soul needs to be nourished at the same time. Mm-hmm. There is a d- difference between the two humanisms are vastly different, and we can ask, well, what is it? That, why on earth are they named the same? <laughs> yes. Uh, you can call the, I would use, a, I know it's a clumsy way of phrasing, but the humanism of um, Ficino and Pico is magical religious humanism, mm, mm-hmm. whereas the um, uh, humanism of the of our modern era is rational scientific humanism. Mm-hmm. And they, they have ultimately two quite different sources of authority. For the um, magical religious humanists, they do exalt... E-X-A-L-T, exalt the nature of human mind to be, in a sense, equal participant with the divine. And they see the wonder of human mind as um, rising, transcending up to the highest point. And they feel that aspects, I suppose their criticism, a lot of aspects of medieval thought is that it tended to, it was pious, but it crushed that spirit and didn't see, didn't give man in human being that transcendence there is something of transcendental about the um, attitude to uh, human being with the renaissance humanists now that is why you see what the most famous text of pico's is oration on the dignity of man oration on the dignity of man mm-hmm. um, so that it would raise man to be with christ you see it wouldn't mm-hmm. in any way deny or attack the spiritual but it would want to see the true raising of us um now there are lots of arguments that the cultural historians can make that i think are have a lot of truth to them that this actually is a brief moment in european history and it actually sets up the precursor for the scientific enlightenment because this mm-hmm. emphasis on the powers of the human mind lends itself naturally to making that more and more what you're treating as number one priority less and less do you rely on the divine or the sacred inspiration behind it until that that's where it be, the divine begins to be shaken by this um so that's a very complex um, argument to take but you do see the difference of the two humanisms the modern rational humanist point of view simply will not tolerate an idea that there's some other divine that is beyond our ordinary perception which we in some way are cooperating cooperating with they'll just regard that as a fanciful delusion left over from ancient religion Mm -hmm. 
and, uh, and they'll rely on they'll rely on a rational method, especially scientific method, as the correct mode of thinking about these things. So it's a cognitive limiting modern um, um, ethical humanism. But actually, it's, it's probably to be called ethical humanism. Now concerned with the ethic of, of human being, which is which is our. They share yeah. that with, with um, the magical religious humanists, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's interesting because one of the points, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, in Moment of Astrology, it's this privileging of science by both humanists, or and not that it has to be mutually exclusive, but hum, let's say humanists and astrologers. It's this tacit acceptance of science as somehow proving a position or proving the position of astrology and one of the and by the way there are all sorts of charts in moment of astrology that show okay here was the inception date of say this attack people might remember the famous um it was like signed by 173 humanists warning people against astrology you know there's the chart of that and it there it's it's not just this is not just an abstract theoretical text but there are stories in here stories about pico you know stories about what was happening and as seen through astrology so it's a very narrative text in that narrative astrological text in that way it's good nice but, thank you dan for saying that otherwise it would sound so abstract and tedious wouldn't it no thank you for saying that yeah and i do i have a couple other stories that um i've read either a moment of astrologies or, or a moment of astrology and we, you know i'll bring those up but at, at what point because to give people a little bit of a background again about the history of astrology there was this real feeling it's well first you said the type of astrology that is more explicitly divinatory, horary astrology, really nobody was doing it. And there was also this feeling that, look, if we just do proper science, if we do double blind, you know, everything's set up well, then that will prove our point. So when were you starting? And then to be quite frank, a lot of those studies don't go well for astrologers. I mean, I'm really, this is a huge topic and you know, we don't really have time to go into all the details. But a lot of those studies really did not go well. Um, yeah, I mean, That's there was right. the famous study, the famous study, the Manhattan suicide study, where it was basically, could you see a signature of suicide in a natal chart? And it was essentially zero. There were no correlations, which interestingly, I had a friend recently, non-astrologer, but he looked at that briefly and he's like, well, that's a wonderful thing to happen because it means suicide is not preordained. And if there's some kind of message from that study, you know, regardless whether it's, you know, a daemon speaking or just chance, that's a great message. Wouldn't, wouldn't we want that to be true, that suicide's not preordained? I mean, I mean it seems it's like it's scientifically bad for astrologers, um, but it's spiritually wonderful to yes. see that. Um, but, but but anyway, so just to get a little bit just back to the history, what was going on about as far as if we just do the science, it'll prove our point, um, you know, that'll settle everything, we'll show them. And then where where were you in all of that at that time? Well, yes, yeah, so I sort of lived through that era of uh, all the scientific wave in, in astrology. Um, and it took me a long time in my own thinking to get all the bits sorted out. Um, so there was a whole issue of the Gokulan data, you see, that had yes. cited astrologers. Um, I, I, I always felt that there was something 
that wouldn't work about those Vernon Clark tests. But as I say in moment of astrology, I wondered if that was just my cowardice. I didn't want to be tested. You see, you can't. Mm, sure. <laughs> but what you, you've said something very important, actually. It is that the, as your friend said about um, uh, the suicide study, it is rather remarkable that we can see in those studies that astrology is not a deterministic system. It can't be because if it were, it would have have some statistics would be able to come up to show something of that. Now, if it's not a deterministic system, what is it? Um, <laughs> of course, the the uh, ultimate sceptic will say it's all just rubbish or delusion. You say no, it's not a deterministic system, but it has a power of in the moment in the Kairos reflecting truthfully a completely individual constellation of reality at that point. Now that is remarkable. If true, mm -hmm. that's remarkable. You see, it's my whole understanding of omens. It, omens have mm -hmm. the power to reveal the constellation of the soul as it's located in the world at that moment. And that's mm -hmm. uniquely for that soul who sees and knows the omen, because mm -hmm. omens are always addressed to somebody who sees them as ominous. Um, so, yes, it's. Um, I, I think I mentioned in Moment of Astrology, I've had a couple of cases where I formed a very strong impression that suicide was a strong possibility here in, in a person I was involved with from the astrology. But I know that's not preordination. It's the signs that are now being mm. generated by the soul of the person themselves. Give me that sign. And that's an entirely different possibility, isn't it? Yes. That, to, to go back to the Vernon Clark trials, because I think those were interesting insofar as you had written that they provide wildly erratic results. There actually were some positive results, but then maybe having trouble to get replicated. But it was really this participatory nature when you still had double blind, but you had astrologers kind of doing it live with other people. And, you know, there's an interesting little video online. It was the astrologer Jeffrey Armstrong, and, and it's the skeptic Michael Shermer. And they did an interesting similar test where it was, again, other people in another room and an astrologer doing it live. And you can find this on YouTube. It's Jeffrey Armstrong, Michael Shermer. Um, but basically... Is that with a J? Jeffrey with a J? Yes. Yes. Jeffrey Armstrong, Michael Shermer. We'll look at that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting um, because he did yield positive results at, like on the face of it. And then interestingly, they switched up a couple of the charts and the people were like, you know what, that doesn't sound like me. And then they switched the charts back and people were like, oh yes, yes, that's me. So it's this concept of sort of a live reading, but still with proper like double blind, you know, whatever. Although there were, there were some good skeptical arguments brought in as well. There was like a astrologer who then became a skeptic and she was there and then there was they did like a live sort of in-person reading and it was like well this could be cold reading but still the the general there's a general idea that hey maybe there is really something to this participatory nature of um astrology that's really the key to it um and you know that yeah so i, I don't want to jump too quickly into the next thing but then this gets into destiny being negotiable versus destiny non-negotiable and that we do in some sense have this machinery of destiny i mean you know the plane flies the you know we have <laughs> we have, you know we have gravity we have classical physics and all this stuff but then somehow divination actually disrupts this 
especially as you say, when you do it properly, you have your craft and you're open to somewhat of the chance or divine element that is being brought forth through the process of divination. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Destiny is negotiable versus destiny is non-negotiable. Well, right. Um, <laughs> I know. Well, I know. Well, back to the Greek scientific achievement, mathematics of the cosmos, that certainly gave people the idea that because the planets are, good heavens, but dogs barking outside. That's okay. um, so funny. Um, that gave people the idea that because the planets which give omens can be calculated in advance as an ephemeris, therefore one's life is conducted like the ephemeris. One can see put that way, it's a very naive conception. But that is that um, that did, does take hold in astrology over and over again, that gives a, a certain determining power simply by the objective scientific nature of the planets being there. Right. So that that leads to a model of astrology, which I call the machine of destiny. Mm -hmm. It's grinding up. And, and it, it's interesting that even um, velvet glove approaches to astrology like humanistic astrology, for which I've got a lot of time. But humanistic astrology doesn't quite get out of that trap because it says that you have trends and potentials. Well, that's still not good enough if you've been ephemeris with ephemeris precision clockwork generated trends and potentials still doesn't doesn't really cut the mustard there's something mm -hmm. much more mysterious at work here mm -hmm. so um when we do go back to the augural origins of astrology mm -hmm. we see that those the religious attitudes of those cultures have a, a, a strong negotiating element with the planets it's normally collective and with the king but it will be that the divine isn't just sitting there um, pushing us around. It is actually in a in a compact with us and will be working with us or against us if we don't listen to it. But it, it's not the participation is the essential element there. And once you have a participatory element, that is why it's odd about destiny, because there are some themes in life where you see the way it seemed destined to happen. Mm -hmm. But it does still depend on you at the key moment, mm -hmm. making the right, making a creative move instead of a negative, uh, selfish or egotistical move. It depends on mm -hmm. that. And you begin to realize, yes, I did as if you're helping your destiny along mm -hmm. and then participating in it. So the word is negotiable capable of being negotiated but for most people in their lives they set themselves on a certain track mm -hmm. you you will know and i will know readers who hearers who are astrologers will know you can get people and you can see the way they're living their life mm -hmm. the chart seems to run just nice and hunky-dory the way they're living their life and you can see what's coming because there's something about their life that is so already stamped in them that it shows you right now where it's going now who is predetermining who here it's actually the person is living in a ultimately concrete way that doesn't give space for true creativity or freedom mm -hmm. and they will therefore hit the inevitable consequences of that attitude and you're being shown now the signs of that but it isn't a given at birth that they will always have to do this it could have been a completely other constellation of reality that they came up with when they see an astrologer mm -hmm. so uh, so it's a subtle business i mean it's difficult for the mind to grasp the idea mm -hmm. that participation with a divine with a divine order of things is a scope for true freedom 
and that, at that point, you see, you you bridge the gap with Christianity and all the great religions. You right. you haven't you haven't dictated that the soul is bound. It's not. Yes, and I think Thomas Hardy might be able to help us again through the Mayor Castor Bridge. And so it is this acknowledgement that there is this machinery of destiny. There are the stars. You know, we I had another astrologer on, Ariel Goodman, and she does a lot of work with what she calls the Venus star point. When the Venus is Kazemi, uh, the sun, um, that's like she works with this. It's her, you know, really technique. But she, on the podcast, she was like, look, we're kind of stuck with the way the planets are moving. I mean, we're not changing, at least not now, the way Saturn is moving. Um, but so, you know, in the mayor of Casterbridge, it's essentially about th this machinery, but how do you handle it? So Henshard, the protagonist, obviously he falters. But at the end of the book, we learn that um, the ingenious machinery contrived by the gods for reducing human possibilities of amelioration to a minimum. But, you know, and it, it, but it, it, it's, it's basically this theme of as well, there is this machinery, but all along the way, he never tried to look at the stars and maybe imagine something different. And interestingly, his daughter, and who becomes later um, her, um, his daughter's um, husband, you know, they're actually much more imaginative. They understand this machinery of the stars, but then about, her name's Elizabeth, you know, Hardy writes, fancies find room in the strongest minds. You know, so again, imagination. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's about imagination and having imagination to play with the stars, um, not necessarily not acknowledging that there is this machinery of the stars, but to play with them. And I, you know, I, gosh, I can't find the exact quote. It was these guys, they were, they, we used to, when I lived in Connecticut, I used to show up with them and they were Buddhists, but they spent a lot of time reading Greek and they were reading like Marcus Aurelius in Greek. And there was one passage where Marcus Aurelius said like, appreciate the beauty of the stars, but don't be moved by them. I mean, and he was very much not, I was reading some of the stuff, not into conjurers or not into poetry or being moved by rhetoric. So, you know, very much, you know, I, what you're talking about, if I may, like sort of this stoicism. And then this, again, coming back to character is destiny. We are, we have our character and it's kind of fixed our own nature, but what do you do with that? Especially in moments as revealed through divination. Okay, yes. a couple, couple stories I think that could be helpful. People might remember a gentleman named Paul Kurtz. I don't know if you remember this story, but he he was one of the big Arctic critics of astrology. Um, and you said you actually met him at one point. And do you remember that meeting? Yes, I think I mentioned a little anecdote of meeting him by a coffee machine yes. at a conference yes. of the skeptics. Right. Uh, pushed up to him rather rudely, I suppose, and said <laughs> I was an astrologer. Um, and um, I said, what would he say if I said that astrology is a form of um, poetics? It's a poetry of the heavens and mm -hmm. that, that I'm not trying to be scientific. And when I said that, he said briefly, obviously trying to hold on to his coffee, he said, gee, that would be just fine. Gee, that would be just fine. Yes. I mean, the point being, uh, he will treat poetry um as, as in a different order to science and not a problem not a challenge to science so so this, this comes down to your note i know you you want us to talk about and perhaps, perhaps end on that that the future of astrology yes. and the scientific endeavor you see i think we do ourselves a terrible disservice 
by trying to rely authoritatively on the, a rational, technical, scientific and empirical approach. It's not that, that those are wonderful truths and they're important gifts to us and the Enlightenment's given us these gifts, but they're not the way of understanding these deeper questions of mind and reality. They simply are not. And in fact, it's through poetry, poesis, mythopoesis, that mm. we better approach what the mystery of astrology is. And uh, that, to my mind, must remain the future future task of astrology. You know, it's interesting. I remember when I was, I used to live in Connecticut and I, I used to, actually a very lovely group of people. It was a humanist group and um, there was a lady there and somehow these conversations just get going. And she's like, isn't there any place for mystery and wonderment and beauty? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think this kind of goes back to my aesthetic point about modern humanism. It's kind of like, all right, take a look in the mirror. Is this, hey, maybe like have these studies or you're doing science, but you know what? Ah, oh, this poem. And, um, you know, there's actually at Yale uh, University, there is, um, I think it's some sort of part of the university that is, it, it seeks to bridge science and the humanities. So it seems like a straw. And I actually used to talk to the gentleman, actually an ornithologist uh, who ran this, um, you know, sort of in, little institute. There's a gentleman uh, who gave a lecture there by the name of Hasak Chang, and he really a theoretical physicist, and he was really very much into the idea of dispensing with scientific monism or, well, let's say, like, hey, Newton got some things wrong, but we still teach him, yes. you know, or maybe Freud got some things wrong in light of other things, but we still don't, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So maybe an excavation of some past things can reinform the present and the future. Um, and hopefully in an enchanting way. Um, another story that I, I, I loved in um, Moment of Astrology, Herodotus, and this gets into, again, the omens. It, it was some sort of battle that, I think it was between the Greeks and the Persians, and the omens were bad. And you, Do you remember what happened in this story? Yes, it's that um, the Spartans then yes. made a move mm -hmm. um, at the same moment that, um, oh, I'm trying... Pausanias, I think it was, leading the all of the independent Greeks. He, he got good omens at that point. as He mm -hmm. was taking one further shot at getting good omens. Mm -hmm. And spontaneously at that moment, the Spartans made a break that altered the whole shape of the battle as right. he got a good omen. And you ask, for well, which way round is it working? It's, um, uh, it's, it's not a causal connection here. It's, uh, it's simply that as the mood of the mind of the Spartans changed and they made their move, that itself already is the lucky move that brings a lucky omen. It all goes together. You can't make a causal train there. And um, that, that certainly is that it is open to us to seize our destiny, is, is mm. what I would say, which mm. they did at that moment. Um, but now, now yeah. that we're getting... We're getting we, we've gone a long time on this, haven't we? Are you sure your listeners are going? Yes, we're we're coming. Yes, we're coming. We're coming to the end. I promise. Um, and it's it's interesting because I think you write in Moment of Astrology um, that one of the generals saw a temple of Hera and he got a second wind and that led to victory. Or so it's the it's these moments to moments. It's each individual moment yes. in space and time. And then also, you know, I've been reading a lot of writers. They're you know, um, like Phil K. Dick or Ursula Gwynn, science fiction writers, although, you know, still great, they're, you know, um, just, you know, really great literature, great science fiction. Um, 
And they seem to be like, okay, let's, that's just, we don't, at some point we might, like, I think even Thomas Pynchon in Gravity's Rainbow, he talks about, oh yeah, that person's still stuck on causation. <laughs> like it's yes. this idea, it's like causation, like linear thinking and linear reactions. It's not the only thing going on. Um, and, and, you know, to, to get back to your point about seizing your destiny, one of my favorite, um, there was an episode of the Twilight Zone. I don't know, do you remember the Twilight Zone? I do, I do, okay. yes. There's a great episode called Nick of Time, and it's, of all people, William Shatner, and it's a, a newlywed couple, and they break down in, you know, a small town. I guess they're on their way to New York or something, and they're in Ohio. Um, and I know the episode you're talking oh, you about. Oh, yes, the Nick of Time, where there's yes. this addictive machine on the table. Yes, and they basically it comes like they're addicted. He's like, "Will I get the job?" And then he calls up, and yes, and then it's like they keep going with it. And then finally, his fiance is like, "You know, we're done with this. You know, you can you, what you're saying, seizing destiny. Are we going to just sit here chained to this napkin holder, or are we going to, yes. you know, are we going to like move on with things? You know, I mean, we or that's." Because it's like, okay, what does the chart say? Well, how much are you spending time looking at charts or else just living life, you know? Um, That's right. Yeah. So another thing, too, you you talked a little bit about psychological astrology. And and, and this this is very interesting, again, in the context of one's natal chart um, with, you know, a more divinatory or momentary conception of astrology, but that... Um, you know, somebody can come into, and this gets into classical psychoanalytic thinking, but transference as a metaphor. So you can have the analyst and then the analyzant, like the, or the client and the patient, and the p- patient projects things onto the analyst. And sometimes you can actually see that in the chart. So that astrology is potentially a really fruitful ground to bring into the psychological arts. Um, yes, and it's, it's, it's interesting. interesting. I, I have, one, one quickly. I have, it's funny, and I, I'm not a therapist. I don't claim that at all. Not a medical professional or anything. But I do, I get a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists coming to me because they, they complain in their field a lot of the time. It's so rationally bound that there's no element for creativity and heart in it. Um, so I wonder if you have any brief thoughts on that, like one's own character, but then there's a chart that emerges and that there, the transference, um, and this is for maybe therapists to think about, um, that, or even just anybody that is counseling somebody that it can be shown in the chart. Yes. Well, we've raised a variety of issues there, Dan. Um, um, there are several levels that I do think we can learn a lot from the psychotherapists and psychoanalysts about the what happens in it, these exchanges in the transference. We need to learn about that. And I, I agree that transference phenomena will then be mirrored in the constellation of the horoscope. You do have to watch that there um, we're talking about two different craft traditions here, you see, and uh, melding them is uh, is quite a trick. Um, so, um, do you know what I mean? Uh, you're, you're talking, yes. You have the yes. whole tradition of practice and it's ritual and craft of psychoanalysis and you have the quite quite different sort of tradition of astrology right. and one mustn't reduce one to the other, but sure. I do think they can learn from each other. But right. um, yes, yeah, so I mean, I, I like the type of work in astrology that is to some degree ongoing where you're talking with a, with a client uh, uh, and it raises all the issues of omens and symbolism uh, and it be extended over a number of sessions. 
I think that's very fruitful and can be very fruitful work. And that's not dissimilar to uh, psychotherapy treatment. But the, it, that's a bit. That's another whole podcast, um, Dan. That really sure. is another whole podcast. Sure, I think that, yeah, of course. I mean, I think the basic point being the chart can reveal something in the context of a psychological session or some sort of counseling yes, session. Yes, that's right. Um, that's right. Um, so, and this is actually a general point anyways, that there are all sorts of people of all kinds of disciplines and what you were going on just in the beginning, hey, there can be a basic sun sign. And, you know, take, for example, I was in a reading group, we were discussing Mayor of Casterbridge, and the gentleman said, well, I related to Henshard because at some point he fights with the bulls and it's my own nature and I've had some missteps in my life and I'm a Taurus. So what are you supposed to do? Throw, you know, that there's something really live there that's very amazing and it can be brought into literature. So there are all these different disciplines that can really learn from astrology and vice versa. And it actually, you know, he was a Catholic gentleman, so he had some reservations, but I was able to field the conversation and say, yeah. well, hey, did it? so it's, there's, there are there's a lot of, there's so much opportunity um, and we, we can really make a turn. And remember, turns are the whole basis of astrology. You know, you think of yes. the tropical zodiac, tropicos or tropos, the turning of exactly. those solstice points. So we have to make these turns. I mean, we, we can. We, and, we, and astrologers, we astrologers need to uh, think more, think better and more purely about what it is we're doing because we're, mm -hmm. we're muddled in our theories. That's mm -hmm. uh, one of the themes, remember, I was always coming back to. We have an extraordinary gift that we're a treasure that we've been given and we um, sometimes slightly mess it up with our uh, theorizing our rationalizing of it right and you know it's interesting too as far as the future of astrology it's not like people aren't interested in astrology it's like you know you have all the humanists really going after astrology you have tons of people there's an interest and even skeptics sort of their closet astrologers there's a lady her name is sally quinn she wrote a book called Finding Magic, and her husband was the late Ben Bradley, who was the publisher of the Washington Post. Right. And for years and years, she had led, she had used astrology, and she came from the South, like, you know, again, this area, New Orleans, I think she had spent time here. And she, because she interviewed, she had a blog called On Faith, and she interviewed, at one point, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. And... Richard Dawkins apparently has this superstition that he jumps over a crack. Well, that's not very rationalist now, is it? Like, if you you should be like, well, is this going to, like, does this superstition mean anything? Let's test it. Or apparently Christopher Hitchens, according to Sally Quinn, she read he read his horoscope a lot, almost, like, daily. So this is not exactly being a proper skeptic, in my opinion. But there's, you, we have all these polls. Like, people are massively interested in astrology. I mean, it's not like there's not the interest out there. I mean, we're talking like, what is it? 90% of people know their sun sign. I, I mean, it's like, and then even still, like how many people at least glance at their horoscope? I write horoscopes um, for, it's an, a magazine called Ambush Magazine here in the Gulf South. And I always try to, I put some of these little paragraphs in there about, hey, take this sort of divinatory of the moment approach to this and see what happens as a moment of reflection. And then that's, that, puts the horoscope, I think, in a more, you know, we've used the word grace, but having the grace to, you know, hopefully I can impart some sort of message and it can be interpreted. So there's a participatory nature with a sun sign horoscope, um, as opposed to just, you know, here's the horoscope, right? And then it's, you know, so um, one, one last thing, and then we can close. 
Um, you t it, this one of the things we're really trying to we're using these arguments against astrology and accepting them in a large part, although rejecting some of the skeptical arguments. But to where does that move us if these things are true? Where if the if a lot of these arguments are true, where does that put us? And that moves us somewhere. But that's not to dispense with science of astrology, as you were saying. The Gokulans. I, I mean, there there was something there. It's still debated, but. You know, there, there there still is a place for science in astrology. I mean, hell, like we we know where Mars is going to be. I mean, we like visually in the sky, that's something. Or we know, <laughs> I mean, there there is part of it that is science. Um, but there, there, it's not to totally dispense with that stuff. But I think you talk about there needs to be kind of like a wall of separation. At least, okay, do your craft, do astrology. If somebody comes to you know, a book group and she's an Aries and she's been using the moon phases for 20 years, don't say, well, actually, you really should have been doing it this way all along. Yeah, <laughs> but that there still is right. a place for, you know what, I'm seeing a lot of correlations between this, can it be replicated? This, we really might look into this. Um, yeah. But that these things can really coexist and march on together like the two heads of Janus and maybe there's a gateway. Yes, we, we don't need to have a battle between the two. They need to know their different concerns. That, right. that, that needs a more philosophical discrimination by the astrologers of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I want to bring philosophy in a true sense into it, into the equation. Mm -hmm. um, because then they, the astrologers wouldn't make mistakes of pitching themselves onto a materialistic model. Um, mm -hmm. which they then f call science, but science is much broader than that. But that, right. that's another whole enormous theme, enormous theme. Because... Right, right. And, the, and the purpose of this podcast is really to give people a feel for these arguments and really a feel for the beauty of astrology and the humanities at large and language yes. Um, yes, that we've absolutely. woven. We have different words and they, they the words are a thread and they take us to a different place and the symbols take us to a different place, a very imaginative place. And let's face it, we it's, you know, fragmentation actually can be a gift because fragmentation in a way brings us to chance and grace because if it's the throw of cards or tarot cards or throw of eaching sticks, you know, there is a random chance element to that and that we can, although some would say that it's, you know, divine intervention, but it still brings us to a glimpse into the divine, whatever that is. That's right. And, and it, it's, it's no, a great a good, move. Good note to end on the idea of the moment of grace. Yes. 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 And to have the grace to accept this stuff. All right. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. This means All right, to me. Thank it's, you very and, much. And did you, okay. So, um, Astro Divination is the dot com is the website and also Company of Astrologers. That's Any right. last words? Any last words, Jeffrey? No, that's fine. Uh, good luck to everybody doing astrology and keeping <laughs> yeah. live symbolism. You're doing wonderful work. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, you know, and also for you moving, you know, that I, I think we we're talking about this, but the um, that the speech you gave on Lily. There's a like I was saying, there's a nodal return to that. So this is a recapitulation of some of these themes, and you know it'll be different this time around. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. Thank you so Goodbye. much. Well, this is Dan Beck signing off. I'm oh, sorry. Thanks, Jeffrey. Bye. This is Dan Beck signing off from the Star Love Podcast. And remember, if you love the stars, they'll love you back. On the next episode of the Star Love Podcast, we welcome astrologer and artist Ann Beaversdorf. We discuss Anne's multifaceted career, her unique take on Pluto, and her talent as an artist working with fibers.
Thank you for listening, and please rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a future podcast, email Inner Makeup Business Manager James Filtz at james at innermakeup.net. To support the production of the Star Love Podcast, go to the Leave a Tip Make a Wish section at innermakeup.net to leave your donation.